0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So, welcome everybody. It is uh, October twenty first, twenty twenty one. It's seven thirty seven p.m. Pacific. Uh, Daylight Time. This is meditation and attachment, deepening your practice. And what I thought I would talk about uh, tonight is ordinariness. Um, One of the things that I notice in a lot of the work that I do and a lot of uh, the people that I work with, uh, there's a kind of revulsion of ordinariness. there's a sense uh it, it depends how it, uh the wor- uh, how it, it it's configured uh, but some people have this idea that the world owes them because they had such a hard time growing up um, or that the ordinariness of moments is is not something that they want they want everything to be spectacular or everything to be heightened and there's a a a, an aversion or or an unconsciousness around things that are ordinary and one of the things that's interesting to notice about uh particularly practice i'm trying to turn off this music background um is that with practice, what we're uh, always uh, trying to do is to turn toward the sense of the ordinary and to value it in the same way that we value everything else. So much of life passes in these ordinary moments and so much, particularly of a householder's life, is so routine, I suppose, in a monastic uh, environment, it's even more routine than that there's an old zen saying uh, after the ecstasy the laundry all of those uh, chores all of those things need to be done and in fact the more consistent you are in doing them uh, uh, the more stable life tends to get which leads to actually more energy more time and energy for practice and for um, uh, the freedom to explore Uh, practice deeply. One of the things about relationships, and we do talk quite a bit about attachment here, is that it's the consistent uh, encounters with people that are emotionally regulating that produce that sense of connectedness and subtleness that also supports that. And if you remember the um, Dunbar numbers, and his strategy for a b c and d relationships i've added an e people that you actually aren't in relationship to or people that you were in relationship to but are no longer in relationship to um the intimacy of an a and b relationship uh is that you, you you get to know pretty much everything about what they're doing and they get to know everything about what you're doing um but have you ever noticed how long it takes to get anything done so that you're hearing over and over again these small steps in the in the progress of these things unfolding so there is that those peak moments when things happen and there's a celebration of that but all of the the many many steps along the way are pretty ordinary Uh, the um and the tenacity that it often takes to get anything to happen I mean I got the galleys of my book today uh, my new book today and they look awesome Uh, and it I have been trying to get somebody to agree to print it all over the world since April (laughs) so you know getting somebody to it that's something happening you know you may have heard that there's a worldwide shortage of paper May have heard that there's a worldwide shortage of shipping containers, uh, that the the whole production line, the whole uh, system is uh, uh, strained and broken and slow, and how these things affect uh, all of these processes. Pushing um, along, rolling with, uh, I like to say, Rocking with the punches and rolling with the blows, <laughs> Christian.
1: I was just curious if if you would approve a F category of people that when you see walking down the street, you hide behind a corner.
0: <laughs> and why would you hide?
1: Just I wanted to just line out all the all the all the letters up to F. Oh, <laughs> just because you don't want to see them you're trying to avoid these this group
0: oh uh i would still say that if you're a- actively trying to avoid somebody you're in relationship to them and then i'd put them as a d but I,
2: uh... <laughs> um
0: how is that how do you do with routine i guess is a good question are you able to show up and to engage and to be present for it and and actually enthusiastic about the task that you need to do or does it become a chore and something that you're reluctant to do or you don't enjoy and what about that process is actually changeable even if the task is the same how would you be able to enter into each task that you have to do with this idea of really engaging into doing it uh, and uh, deriving a sense of pleasure or uh, some positivity out of it Uh, and what would that require you to do in order for that to happen one of the things that I notice about myself is that I like to do things well And almost any task that I take on, if I have a sense that I've done it well, there's a a level of satisfaction in it. It doesn't really matter what the task is. So that you can orient yourself toward uh, pretty much everything that you do. I have a very uh, routine life, uh, and I tend to do well, I think, with routine. Uh, I get up at uh, 7 in the morning. And then I'm sitting in my chair ready to meditate at 7.20, five mornings a week. And then uh, I used to get up at 8 a.m. before I got a dog. Now I still get up at 7 (laughs) (laughs) a.m. Because the dog apparently is less flexible than I am in terms of the time that they need to be running outside and sniffing everything and then uh doing the dishes and making food and sitting at the desk Uh, each of these things requires attention one of the things that dan talks about um dan brown talks about uh, when i first met him uh, was uh when I said to him, what's the goal for your practice? He said, rainbow body. And uh, uh, I had no idea what rainbow body. It's mostly a Theravada practitioner, and nobody ever mentioned rainbow body. And so I went and looked it up. And rainbow body is this thing that happens to monks uh, after about 13 years of never having a negative thought. They they their physical body dissolves into light and they just emanate out into the
2: universe. Um,
0: one of the things about uh, Buddhism and uh these different ways in which Buddhism is taught, and the, the traditional A- Asian version of it versus this this sort of dry western logical version of it um is that the idea that if you could restrain your thoughts to only positive thoughts for a period of at least 13 years that you would dissolve into light seems fairly fantastic from a western point of view and in fact quite impossible but if you Google rainbow body, what you'll see are pictures of monks who's uh, dissolved into light and what's left after they go. Um, I thought that was fascinating. When I was in Myanmar, uh, the sadhu told a story about the power of the uplifting force of metta. If you look at the traditional teachings on um, Jhana, one of the descriptions of jhana is this uplifting energy that's transportative. And the Sadhguru told a story of an old woman who was very slow in getting ready to go for a celebration at the Shwedagon Pagoda, which is the big uh, pagoda in downtown Yangon. And so her family members got irritated with her because she was taking too long. And so they told her that she couldn't go and they all got in a cab to cross Yangon to go to the Shwedagon Pagoda. And rather than get angry, she sat down and began to practice metta. And the uplifting force of piti transported her across Yangon. Uh, And so that she was able to arrive at the Shwedagon Bakota as her family was arriving in the taxi and she was able to greet them as they got out of the taxi. So this is a woman flying across uh, Yangon on the energy of Piti. Um, I normally am am the the, sort of fly in the ointment, but there was a, a german man who was sitting in front of me and he raised his hand and he said to the Sando, uh, would you mind demonstrating that for us now <laughs> of which this of which the sandoah did not react at all um, but i did quiz him later about it uh, and he said to me <clears throat> you have one of these sharp western minds so you can't see what's right in front of you, which I thought was an interesting uh, expression of conditioning. I have a friend, Molly Favor, who, who has a sense of those kinds of experiences, which I really don't ever have. Um, how do you hold that? And how has the conditioning formed the way that you're able to conceptualize what's actually happening you know in the west we have these this um instruction very early that when you're if you're seeing and you look out you take in what's there and you create this internal working model of it and then you operate as if you're in this working model this internal working model of what's actually out there and that it's a it's an accurate representation of what's out there but in um, buddhist thought you take in the data that your senses are able to to uh, take in so there are photons of light and they strike the retina you take in the experience of that if there are sound vibrations and they strike the ear you're able to take that in uh, your body is able to take in lots of different sensations and then you have this internal reaction to them internal visual thinking internal auditory thinking emotion in the body and then you take all of that and you compare it to the perceptual database and then you create based on conditioning your conditioning in your imagination the experience of the present moment which is then projected outward. and again i'm trying to talk about ordinariness christian
1: in the so in the buddhist conception like is there some initial conditioning cuz if you're a child and you're born i think of like you're kind of a blank slate so why would you why would you take all this raw data and turn it into the particular conditioning that that you end up turning it into does, if, does that make sense
2: mhm well you're
0: born and your brain stem is intact and so anything that's instinctual is intact and operating all the autonomic systems are operating Um, one of the things i think is fascinating about attachment is that they did a study to see when the first gesture for attachment occurred in newborns and what they found was that around 42 minutes infants reflexively smile which is that thing in the attachment uh, system we we normally think that when a child is distressed they cry but actually they look cute first that's how we try to attract attention we look as cute as we possibly can and if somebody comes when you look really cute then you and they mirror that back to you remember that we we see ourselves in relationship to other people in buddhism we call uh, from the Satipatthana sutta uh, mindfulness of inside mindfulness of outside and mindfulness of inside and outside Um, the world in buddhism is other people and when you express yourself you understand the way that you're appearing because it's reflected back to you in the responses of other people If you're an infant and you look really cute you don't even know you're looking cute you're just instinctively trying cuteness as a way to go and if somebody responds to that and reflects that back then you begin to build this working model of yourself as somebody who's really cute and that you can get what you want by being cute all you have to do is look really uh you know touching and and people will meet your needs but if nobody comes, then there's a, a, a process of confusion. And you can see this in, say, the face of a two-year-old pretty easily. I remember um, uh, with uh, my uh, uh, one of my Buddha kids, uh, Daisy, uh, at a Halloween party when she was about two years old. Uh, she was just standing in the hallway, and there was all of these people milling around, and she just put her arms up and smiled because her expectation was that when she signaled that she wanted to be picked up by putting her arms up somebody would come and pick her up <clears throat> but this was a big party and and, and uh, uh her parents didn't see her and so the next expression was this look of confusion and sort of this pumping of the arms and then when nobody came there was a kind of whimper And then there was an intermittent cry and then her mother was there picking her up because if you're really tuned into your kid you hear them in all of that noise Um, partly because you know if they get all the way to tantrum mode it's going to take a half an hour to calm them down and you really want to get there before that happens so that it doesn't take that much energy to do it that's the thing we look cute and then we look confused and then we whimper and then we intermittently cry and then we cry continuously and then we tantrum and then if nobody comes we go into anaclyctic depression Uh, to preserve energy we just really shut down hard um But all of this happens in response to the world to the way that people respond to us so we're born we're completely helpless we don't know anything there is no autobiographical memory available because the brain hasn't developed sufficiently there's just the the beginning of procedural memory and these interactions and the way that people respond are stored in the procedural memory which is the the place of conditioning where conditioning lives and then you just take all of this in and you begin to build this working model of yourself and what you can expect from the world and then um and you can tell this for yourself if you have memories of early childhood at four or five or six say there's a stream of autobiographical memory that begins to happen and that happens because uh Uh, the the, i'm using a metaphor right left but the left brain developed enough that you can uh, begin to process at that level one of the things about the 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 autobiographical memory is that it likes explanations it likes stories to explain things uh, and so that it has a tendency to create narratives that explain uh, and and make the world seem less frightening when you were a kid and you were old enough to remember what happened and you were asked to engage in ordinary tasks what was the working model of ordinary tasks that you developed was it a shared fun collaborative experience that you did uh, as a family um, was it a, did it almost feel like a punishment because you were uh, you were uh, directed to do it alone without the support of other people Was the way that you did it generally acceptable or not acceptable? Um, Were you harshly criticized for the way that you did it, or were you delighted in uh, for the way that you did it? Each uh, step along the way, were you supported and encouraged and helped to become um, good at ordinary things, or was it uh, more of a painful experience? I think these are the things that really begin to inform how we can be uh, 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 in the ordinariness of things and also how we might uh, instead crave these heightened experiences instead. what was the consistency like children like sort of limits and consistency and but at the same time the freedom to move around in the limits as the in the way that they want to they have a narrow bandwidth for things and so what's helpful to them is that that you keep their experience within the narrow range that they can tolerate we we sometimes call that the window of tolerance emotionally and that anything that exceeds that range you you have the experience of being supported uh, externally by your caregivers and that they take over handling the things that you can't do but at the same time as uh, your capacities increase and your abilities increase they keep expanding the the limits so that you're you're always being challenged to to learn new things and to 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 develop new skills this is the process of teaching a child to explore. So then we begin to understand that in each moment, of course, we're creating the moment based on our conditioning and our capacity to imagine. Um, Do you have some sense of how uh, the early experiences that you had uh, might have limited your capacity to imagine something? often as children when over and over again we're unable to get the thing that we really would like to have or that we need uh, the mind begins to limit the capacity to imagine those things because it's too painful over and over again to have the experience of not being
2: able to get them
0: do you have the sense that uh, there's a, a particular kind of enjoyment that comes from being able to do something well? Or do you have a sense that there's a, a capacity to enjoy attempting to do something, whether you do it well or not? Um, for myself, I'm dyspraxic, and what that means is that I have my hand eye coordination is pretty poor. So anything that requires a lot of dexterity and a lot of hand-eye coordination, I, I don't do very well. Uh, so catching the ball or even, say, doing the dishes is hard because I I um, break a lot of them in the process of doing the dishes. I mean, I have a dishwasher because... Uh, uh, it, it was cheaper to get a dishwasher than all new dishes <laughs> over and over again <laughs> so part of that is also understanding the nature of who you are and what your capacities are um, but still uh so much of of the things that need to happen are repetitive and ordinary how do you come into a place of equanimity with them and how do you come into a place of enjoyment of them a sense of satisfaction Uh, and so we need to find a way to be in relationship to this rather than each task itself needing to be spectacular Uh, Christian
1: would you think of secure people as being less conditioned than say other like people with other attachment types
0: no i i would say i would consider them more flexible and less rigid Um, uh, maybe it's just different conditioning one of the things about secure functioning flexibility is one of those things you 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 you're you have a lot you've developed a lot of different skills your capacity to mentalize is greater and so you can take in more data uh, uh, imagine many more outcomes and then choose between them and uh, take actions that tend to lead uh, uh, in a way that you've been able to mentalize it better when you're disorganized you mentalize uh, poorly Uh, in relationship to somebody who's secure i mean they they really can mentalize rings around you it's using a metaphor and so because the capacity to take in data is more limited the capacity to process data is more limited uh, and the capacity to come up with uh, novel solutions to novel situations is more limited uh uh, what you begin to notice is a kind of rigidity sets in I can do it like this and that's how i'm going to do it rather than taking in the present moment experience and uh, finding solutions and then what you notice is that uh, insecure disorganized attachment because the mentalizing frames are so different tend to respond in more predictable ways when we do uh, the uh, when you learn to say score and adult attachment interior one of the things that you discover is that the hardest ones to pick the hardest ones to understand are the secure ones because they're so variable whereas the the more uh, uh, the harder the insecure disorganization is the easier it is to pick because the patterns are so rigid in them um And that's really related to the capacity to mentalize so mentalizing we use the buddhist idea of uh, mindfulness of inside mindfulness of outside mindfulness of inside and outside you're able to understand what your reaction in the present moment is you're able to understand uh, how conditioning has created that uh, uh, understanding of what's happening you're free to Uh, express that in any way or not express it externally you're able to track how your expression affects uh, the person that you're expressing it to you're able to understand how their conditioning affects their interpretation of it you're able to track their response to it and you're able to track your response to their response in real time as it's happening and not uh fall into rigid patterns of uh, a belief in uh, a sense of self that needs to be defended but in order to do that you have to be able to be agile and 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 move quickly through all of those experiences in order to respond in a in a reasonable amount of time uh, and not to be reactive is that
2: making sense?
0: When you formulate the experience of the present moment, how much of your conditioning are you tracking? So each time I say a word, you're pulling out the meaning of the word if you speak English from the database of English words that you keep. Do you remember when you learned the word and how you define the word? And and how closely do you think it is to the meaning that I intend when I use the word? (laughs) Or is it just automatic, right? That's what ends up happening with a lot of conditioning. It's just automatic. Um, So, for instance, I'm also dyslexic. One of the things about dyslexic people is that uh we're not phonetical we can't sound out words we have to memorize the word itself the way that you say the word um and so depending on your capacity to mentalize if you get to a place where the mentalizing is low you can't pronounce words anymore it's one of the annoying things i find about the dyslexic experience Uh, you'll come to a place where a word that you've said uh, 10,000 times is unpronounceable. Um, And uh, uh, it can be quite frustrating. And then you look at the word and you try to sound it out and you can't even do that. Uh, It's one of the the dilemmas of, of that. Because you have to remember how to pronounce all of the words, it can be quite limiting in the way that you're you use words and when you can't be sure whether you'll remember how to pronounce them or not it can be quite inhibiting i remember in my school experience that um because i would have trouble pronouncing the words people thought i didn't understand their meaning Uh, and i was constantly being uh, reprimanded for using words whose meaning i didn't understand because i couldn't pronounce them it's very different uh, to understand the meaning of a word and not meaning a, a word and whether you're able to pronounce it. Stas?
3: I Just a uh, comment on that. Like, If I'm playing music and learning a new song or singing, um, I'll have this experience sometimes where I won't consciously know what the lyrics are, but I'll be able to sing it. Right. And then I just have to trust that it's gonna come out. <laughs> it does. Exactly. <laughs> but then if I start thinking about it, it will stop. Right. Or right. but it's an yeah. interesting thing because if I'm thinking about it, I really do know it consciously, then I can just do it. But it's right. like there's these parallel tracks, and the the one of them is very interesting in the sense that it's just me watching this experience happen
0: yeah so uh, and that's one of the things i really rely on i just go for it and see what happens (laughs) (laughs) so it's not all all a downside with this dyslexia either there's a be, uh, do you understand the difference between an autistic brain and a dyslexic brain? They're like the opposite ends of the bell curve. Uh, you you know you have five layers of the prefrontal cortex, and there there's uh, neuronal tubes that connect the different layers with nerve axion. You are familiar with this? Uh, autistic people tend to have a very narrow span of uh, neuronal tube dis, uh, distance so that the axons are very short that connect the tubes and a dyslexic people have the most space between neuronal tubes so the axons are really long which means they have a tendency to connect connect different areas of the brain that in people with a, a, nor, a sort of normative range of distance between them don't do and so what you notice in the dyslexic people is they connect ideas that aren't obviously connectable and that's one of the things I really like about it is that you can string along these ideas that other people um, you almost have to explain the steps of how you got there and that's been you know a vitally important part of my work in connecting the different uh, subject matters together in, in in the way that I uh, think about them um, so you really just take in this idea of who you are and what your capacities or limits are and um, uh, and then come into this place of uh, a joyfulness in 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 the way that you are. I think that one of the things that happens to a lot of us, particularly uh, in the there's a lot of neglect or a lot of rejection, um, uh, even if there's a lot of uh, uh, involvement um, the demand of the caregivers that you involve in their mind states is that those uh, qualities of, of yourself are not reflected back in in a way that's positive uh, often it took a long time to adjust to uh, the nature of a dyslexic thought process because it was so uh, devalued in my education my early education process and to change that around so that the ordinariness of the the way uh, I perceive things uh, takes on a positive quality rather than a limiting quality, Uh, even though there's a lot of things that people who don't have that can do that I I can't really do. that reflection back from other people that's so vital when you're small and and helping you create this working model that as you get older then uh, you want to begin to intentionally pick people who are reflecting back to you this delight this sense of enjoyment in the way that you are so that the ordinary experiences of life also can begin to take on that sense that quality of Enjoyment and delight rather than um, being a reflection of the earliest conditioning in the household I grew up in, uh, daily chores were uh, punishments, so that if you did something wrong, you had to wax the furniture. Uh, if you did something wrong, you had to vacuum. Uh, this was not a good thing to do <laughs> to somebody because then when it's time to vacuum your apartment you think oh I'm being punished for something what did I do wrong uh hilariously uh, I've never walked I'm never waxing the furniture right uh because I don't know maybe you don't wax your furniture uh, uh, so um but so much of life is this quality of ordinariness if you can uh, begin to engage fully each moment uh, and explore and find a way to be able to be in the experience of it and find a sense of enjoyment in some way about doing it uh, then you move from enjoyable activity to enjoyable activity to enjoyable activity and the, uh, the, the small, ordinary things of householder life uh, happen, uh, and then that frees up all of that extra energy for exploration, something that does have meaning, stas.
3: Before I ask my question, I just want to put it out there that I'm on the edge of my seat if we're going to do meta practice or insight practice.
0: <laughs> uh, which going. would you rather do? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I mean, enjoyment of ordinariness. I could see it going either way. Right. Uh, That's not what I I ask. haven't done metta practice in a while, personally.
0: Okay. Um,
3: so I'd rather do that.
0: Okay, and what we're you gonna ask, or was that it?
3: So with the no, <laughs> uh, so with the like, you're what you're talking about the kind of you're having your own experience um, in terms of like feeling understood in that experience, or like you know you you're saying like you have to explain what's going on for you for people to relate because they may not be familiar with that or may not be the dominant experience. Um, I find that like the people I pick, it's mostly unconscious. Like I don't, I mean, obviously it's helpful when I can relate something, they understand it, but a lot of it's just like, they just get it. And I feel like I get them.
0: So, I think that's great and, so, uh, and, and it's wonderful to pick that well but it, it doesn't relieve you of the obligation to monitor whether or not they're responding to your presentation in a way that makes sense to you so that if something happens and their response is different than what you thought that you had communicated you're able to immediately respond to that is that making sense one of the things yeah, like
3: about, about the mentalizing
0: right you're you want to be completely spontaneous and constantly monitoring so that you can be totally free and spontaneous in your expression but also uh, monitoring how it's what it's communicating and how the other person is responding so that if it doesn't land the way that you thought it might you can immediately inquire what happened so that you are in actively engaged in a communication. Uh, if you get too too far into the spontaneous side, then you miss those uh, misattunements, and then you uh, begin to have an experience that's separate from what they're having, and you don't pick up on it, and that that's often what leads to discord in relationships. It's not the expression necessarily that's the problem, but it's the misattunement in terms of what the expression was communicating, because they literally are making meaning out of it based on their database, not on your database, and so you constantly have to be engaged in this back and forth to make sure that what you're trying to communicate is been communicated, and then their reaction to it isn't, they can have any reaction to it, obviously, but that it, it is actually in line with what you were communicating and not uh, the problem of misattunement. With misattunement, we tend to, to respond by yeah, feeling unseen. That's different than the content yeah, of what is being talked communicated. About it. Go ahead.
3: Uh, a, little, a little bit ago, uh, maybe two classes back where um, it's like you can have, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um,
0: See, yeah, what just happened on my end in is terms
3: that of
0: there's a lag, but it looks like you're talking, that we're uh, in, in, a, in an engaged conversation. So I have the experience on my end that you've stopped talking and so I start talking and then you continue to talk. but. Uh, that's because of the lag, which was actually quite long.
3: Well, I lost my train of thought. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so let's do meta. Any particular version of meta you would like to do?
3: Sopping wet meta. <laughs>
0: all right i'll dig up a poem Uh, not uh, so go ahead and take your meditation posture for meta practice loving kindness practice so any comments or questions on that practice
2: Sauce?
3: yeah i can go I, um you think it's possible to resolve pools with metta practice
2: um
0: uh, i've not tried it so it's it's hard for me to think of a way that you would do it what were you thinking
3: well, I, I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt.
0: <laughs> no, I use Metta as a way of uh, when it gets to be too much of a grind, releasing the pool to retreat from it. So it's it's a part of my intentional pool practice, but it's uh, I don't uh, necessarily uh, tie it directly to the release.
3: Yeah, Yeah, me either. Just wondering. And then uh, kind of uh, in the same similar vein, do you think uh, over a long enough time general practice can change working model of self and world to beneficial one, uh, giving you attachment repair?
2: Um,
0: I don't think so. I think the sense of self arises, and then you have a pleasant experience of it, so it undermines the aversion aspect of it, so it undermines the self-hatred, but the uh, attachment conditioning uh, is so varied uh, that it applies not only to the self modeling but the world modeling so how uh, if you didn't then meta for the world or meta for all of the people that you encountered. Um, would that prevent you from people that you're newly encountering from not being created out of the old database Um,
2: so I would also don't know, I haven't done any practices
0: like that but uh, it has always been presented that metta is an entire path to enlightenment in itself um But then I've not encountered those teachings. Know what uh,
3: Metta Indica says in his book. What? He says uh, to practice Metta every waking moment, but um, that it's only insight practice that leads to enlightenment.
0: Right. Um, As we like to say, all roads lead to (laughs) dhokhin. or Zochid, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, I would be interested in that, um, if there was somebody who was sitting in front of me who'd done it and could explain it to me in a way that I could understand it. So if you encounter someone, let me know. Of course. <laughs> Christian?
1: Uh, I I had two questions, I I was wondering if you associate the word curiosity with equanimity practice as well.
0: Um, I don't. uh, I haven't uh, tell you even thought about it until you mentioned it. Uh, Equanimity practice, to me, is full engagement and uh, complete balance. That's how I kind of think of it. To really be fully present, fully engaged in what's happening, and at the same time, completely in balance.
1: I guess I think of the curiosity as the full engagement part.
2: Yep, could be.
1: Um, And then I was wondering... If you think that meta can be used in sort of an unwholesome way like to avoid to avoid going into emotions or or in a way that yeah in a sort of avoidant way
0: in a in a, a bypassing way,
1: I guess so I'm not uh, I know that word has a lot of connotations in sort of the the meditation world but but i I think that's yeah I think that's kind of what what I'm getting at
0: i I do think that it's often used that way uh so uh mostly in in the insight world vipassana is the is the preferred way of practicing and there's insufficient attention to meta practice but then some people use meta practice exclusively and and abandon the vipassana practice um and uh they're able to get into blissful states Uh, Zen used to call it the most pernicious trap in practice which is you get into the second or third jhana in, in in with metta and then you don't do anything else so the insight the insight into the nature of self and world never advances Whereas in the metta-vipassana model, you're using metta as a refuge from the vipassana side overheating, but there's never an intention not to return to the vipassana side as soon as you're able.
1: So you're positing it as sort of, the vipassana is sort of the baseline practice and the metta and the, and the is to help you with the vipassana or like, could you, could you kind of reverse those two?
0: um i i think it's better not to have a preference over which side you're in but to just use the technique that's the most skillful in the moment so often you'll be in the in meta and then an insight will arise and you'll flip into the vipassana side to explore it then when you're finished flip back into the meta side um many of the things that are necessary to see along the way to enlightenment, come up in metta practice, but they're not explored in metta practice, they're explored in vipassana. So in the integrated metta vipassana, you're just sliding back and forth as the practice presents itself. And there really is no preference at all uh, to what's happening. And I think that one of the advantages of that is that the practice never really overheats, so you never have to back out of it. You can just stay in it. Uh, One of the biggest uh, problems with doing just a straight Vipassana practice for most people is that if they get into trouble in the Vipassana practice and they don't have an alternative to it, they stop meditating. And then the momentum forward is lost. Uh, Whereas in Meta Vipassana... That doesn't tend to happen because you're just moving back and forth as you need to. Good enough.
1: Uh, yeah, I have others, but Good I can enough. leave it for another day. <laughs>
0: what others?
1: I guess I'm curious. Uh, in the way that I practice, I tend to use the very structured meditations that you provide, and they're they're very specific, sort of on one topic or on a couple different you know sometimes it gets more complicated is the idea with more advanced practice that you sort of you sort of freestyle your meditation where you're not where, where you kind of let it lead you in a sense or you kind of like really shifting rapidly between things or or does it still make sense to have very specific goals for a particular sit? um
0: If you have uh, a particular insight that you want to explore, it's better to focus on that insight and to explore it with a technique that's likely to produce a result with that particular insight. Um, but if you're not intentionally exploring something uh, and you want to see what what's happening, then you can go into it without that structure um i do i'm doing mostly six lamps practice for my own these days and really just sit uh, into the the gaze and hold the view and see what happens that's the instruction um and that tends to be quite interesting what actually happens there but then i've I've spent years doing the structured practices that I'm teaching, uh, and that was necessary to uh, move through a lot of the uh, negativity that, that act as a, uh, acted as a barrier to being able to do these more advanced practices. So uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily think it's one or the other. It's a process of seeing what the obstacles are and then using the techniques that are useful to remove them and then as you remove more and more, then your, your techniques are shifting toward the stuff that's happening now rather than to the stuff that did happen, that you've worked through. You know, w- one of the things about seeing clearly is that once you see clearly, the delusions don't work anymore. And so the mind abandons them. Um, and then you get freer and freer until... Uh, the uh, the um, you're looking for these subtler and subtler levels of experience so really the the understanding is that you're likely to have the insights that arise based on what technique you're doing uh, and so you do it Uh, If you're exploring in a structured way using a map, then you're just moving through the techniques that are associated with the stages of the map uh, to produce those results. Uh, um, But if you're really just wanting to explore your general conditioning, then you do a more general uh, uh, technique that tends to produce uh, the experience of your conditioning. And then once you understand what that is, you can apply more focused techniques to move through it. Is that making sense?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But now we are out of time. So, Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. We have two spots left in the retreat, one for a a man and one for a woman. I will let you define that in any way that you want. Uh, So uh, if you want to sign up for that, uh, or you're on the fence about it, uh, sooner than later would be better, because uh, it's likely to fill up soon. Um, We have on Saturday the second of the three-day Level 1 series happening uh, from uh, 9 to 4, if you want to sign up for that. If you haven't already, that's also on the website. Uh, We are starting a Level 2 in January. Take a look at that if you're interested in that. I'm going to do an addiction retreat in January as well, so a Saturday and a Sunday. Um, what else are we doing? We'll do another Level 1 series and also a, a meditation and attachment for relationships in, the, in this winter. And then... Um, I think we're going to do a summer retreat. I am going to go to Egypt for the last two weeks of November, so this class will not meet those dates. I can tell you which they are, just
2: so you're aware of it.
0: So, um, Monday, the oh, sorry, this is Thursday. Thursday the 18th, and Thursday the 25th, I'll... I'll be away, and then I'll be back on the second. It'll be posted, and you'll get reminders of that. Um, I offer the teaching on a dana basis, which means I give the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website to do that. Any amount is helpful. It helps support me, and also the work that Meta Group is doing. Um, Thank you for coming, and I hope to see you soon somewhere along the path. I know.
2: Thanks, George. Thanks, George.